We love the idea of being with Jesus. We love the idea of being away from temptation, the devil, and all the things that are wrong and rotten in this world. But between that and heaven stands this little concept of the judgment day. And so this evening, what I want to do is I want to spend some time and just kind of walk through and talk about this concept of what we find. And when we think about the judgment day, it ought to scare us. I mean, you think about your deepest secrets, all your thoughts put on the table, and you thought about all those things and how righteous God is and how we're not and how he's always right and oftentimes we're not, how he's pure and there are times we're not, he's perfect and we're not. It ought to kind of intimidate us. The Hebrew writer said it this way in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Jason this morning wrapped up our series on the book of 2 Peter, and he took us through chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we have that discussion about the coming of Jesus. Jesus is coming. That is a fact. And that's something the Bible teaches in many places. But what we're going to talk about this evening, tied in with that concept, is this idea of the judgment day. How can I be ready? That's what I'm going to talk to you about. Let me begin this evening by reading this fictitious story. This is not a real story, but it puts before us the gravity of what we're talking about. It says, I found myself in a room. There were no distinguishing features save the one wall covered with small index card files. They were the ones like we used to see in libraries years ago that list titles of author or subject in alphabetical order. But these files stretch from floor to ceiling and seemingly endless in either direction. And they had very different headings. As I drew near the wall of the files, the first one that caught my attention was one that read, Girls I Have Liked. I opened it and began flipping through the cards. I quickly shut it, shocked to realize I recognized every name written on that card. The lifeless room with its small files and crude catalog system was an indication of my life. Here were written the actions of my every moment, big, small, and detail my memory could not even match. A senseless wonder and curiosity coupled with horror stirred within me as I began randomly opening the files and exploring their contents. Some brought joy and sweet memories. Others a sense of shame and regret so intense that I would look over my shoulder to make sure to see if anyone was watching. A file named Friends was next to one marked Friends I had betrayed. The titles range from the mundane to the outright weird. Books I have read, lies I have told, comfort I have given, jokes I have laughed at. Some were almost hilarious in their exactness, things I yelled at my brothers. Others I couldn't laugh at, things I've done in my anger, things I've muttered under my breath at my parents. I never ceased to be amazed by the contents. Often there were many more cards than I expected. Sometimes there were fewer than I hoped. I was overwhelmed by the sheer volume of the cards that could be found there. How possibly could I have written all those cards, thousands and millions of them in my life? But each card confirmed this truth. Each was written in my own handwriting, each signed with my own name. When I pulled out the file marked Songs I Have Listened To, 
I realized the file grew to contain the contents of the songs. The cards were packed tightly, and yet two, three, four yards would fall out of all the words of these songs. I was shamed, not so much by the type of music I listened to, but the vast number of hours I spent listening to them. When I came to a file saying lustful thoughts, I felt a chill running down my body. I pulled the file out as, smally, as small as I could, just about an inch, not willing to test its size, and drew out a card. I shuddered at its detailed content. I felt sick to myself to think that such a moment had been recorded in time. One thought dominated my mind. No one must ever see these cards. No one must ever see this room. Somehow I have to destroy all of these cards. As hard as I would try to pull these cards out, they would not come out of the files. And then I saw it. People I've shared the gospel with. The handle of this card catalog was brighter than the rest, almost new. And when I pulled out this handle, a small box, not more than three inches long, fell into my hands. I could count the cards it contained on one hand. And then the tears came. I began to weep, sobbed so deeply that the hurt started to be in my stomach and shook through me. I fell on my knees and I cried and I cried out in shame for the overwhelming shame of it all. No one must ever, ever see this room. I must lock it up and hide the key. But then as I pushed away the tears, I saw him. No, please, not him. Not here. Oh, anyone but him. But it was Jesus. And I watched helplessly as he began to open the files and to read the cards. I couldn't bear to watch his response. And in the moments I could bring myself to look at his face, I saw a sorrow deeper than my own. He seemed so intent, intently to go to the very worst boxes that I had. Why did he have to read every single one? Finally, he turned and looked at me from across the room. He looked at me with a pity in his eyes. But his pity that didn't anger me, I dropped my head, covered my face with my hands, and began to cry again. He walked over and put his arm around me. He could have said so many things. He didn't say a word. He just cried with me. And we'll come back to that story at the very end of our lesson. But when we talk about the judgment day, this is not just a concept we find in our Bible. This is something that the Bible teaches over and over. Let's begin by just running through the vast number of passages in our New Testament that remind us of the judgment day. John chapter 5, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life, those who committed evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Again in the Gospel of John, he who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. Again, we find in our Bibles, Romans 14, verse 10. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Again, in our Bibles, in the book of 2 Corinthians. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one will be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. In the book of Acts, we find, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Again, in the book of Acts, we find, but as he was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened 
and said, go away for the present. When I find time, I will summon you. Paul would say in the book of 2 Timothy chapter 4, In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who loved his appearing. And of course, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, As much as appointed for men to die, and after this comes judgment. And so when we think about this topic of the judgment, this is something that every single person will go through. Not everybody goes through cancer. Not everybody goes through education, through, through higher education. Not everybody goes to war. Not There's a lot of things only some of us go through. But as we look at these passages, one thing that reminds us is that we will all be judged by God. And when we look at that fact, that song keeps coming back to us, are you ready? Are you ready? And I ask, how can we be ready? If you got your Bible, turn with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 20. Because here in this picture, I think we see one of the clearest glimpses of what the judgment looks like. Revelation chapter 20 and begins verse 11. Revelation 20 and begins verse 11. It says, And I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whom his presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. Verse 12, And I saw the dead the great and the small, standing before the throne. Let's just stop there for a minute. I saw the dead. John is going to see every single person. Great, famous, rock stars, names that everybody knows, to the small that hardly anybody knows. I saw the great and the small standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the, and the dead were judged by the things which are written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, three quick things we notice from this. First of all, we notice everyone is there. Everyone is there. The sea gave up the dead. The grave gave up the dead. Hades gave up the dead. Never, ever in the history of this planet has every human being been at the same place, same time, because it's impossible. We could not have been back 200 years ago because we weren't alive 200 years ago. We couldn't have been back with Pharaoh. That's impossible. The Babylonians, the Assyrians, all those great names. But here, everyone's going to be there. Einstein will be there. The apostles will be there. The American presidents will be there. The Beatles will be there. You will be there. And I will be there. That's how this begins. The second thing we notice real quickly is that the judgment is between you and God. It's not between me and you. You know, the older I'm getting, my wife reminds me of this, the older I'm getting, the softer I'm getting. You know, what I used to really wear my kids out on, I just let the grandkids slide by, you know, that who cares, that's, just, that's fine. But, you know, we're standing not before you, not before me, not before the church, not before a panel, but before the God of heaven and earth. And that's, again, something we see here. And then the names written in the book of life make all the difference. 
And again, something we'll need to see and appreciate. And so we ask this question to begin with, why are we judged? I mean, that, that, that's just a, a beginning premise we have to begin with. Why are we judged? If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Psalms 100. That has been our chapter today, Psalms 100, and the psalmist answers this for us. Psalms 100, and if you will, look with me at verse 3. Psalms 100, let's begin by just reading the first three verses. Shout joyfully to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful singing. Now verse 3. Know that the Lord himself is God. Know this. The Lord is God. Not the White House. Not what Hollywood says. Not what current culture says. Not what your mama says. Not what your opinion is. The Lord is God. Not us. Know that the Lord himself is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Why are we judged right there? Because he is the Lord. He made us. And in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, for the disciple, the Lord takes it even to another level here. Because Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 6, as he talks about our relationship to God, he would say at the very end here, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and in verse 19 and 20, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Why are we judged? Because we are made by God. Why are we judged? Because God is upon the throne. Why are we judged? Because God is the one to whom we are all accountable to these things. Now, what makes this judgment so overwhelming? Number one is, it's final. It's the final judgment. There are no appeals. There's no, I'm going to the top. I'm going above your head. Bring me to the number one guy. Well, the number one guy is God. We're judged by God. There's no getting off on good behavior. There's no parole board. The judgment is final. And that's what makes it scary to us and intimidating. Secondly, God is a righteous judge, as Paul would say in 2 Timothy 4. He cannot be bought off. He cannot be fooled. And if you will, put this passage on here in the book of Galatians chapter 6. Notice what it says in verse 7 and verse 8. Galatians chapter 6 and verse 7 and verse 8. Here the apostle says it this way. He says in verse 7, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. God is not fooled. You can fool a lot of people. Sometimes you can fool yourself. But what makes this judgment unlike anything else is that we stand before God. Also what makes this very intimidating for us is eternity is determined upon this judgment. Our eternity, heaven forever or hell forever, is based upon the judgment. And again, that's something that, that's just kind of uh, hard for us to grasp in these things. But unlike our modern court systems today, this is not a gathering of evidence or information. 
You know, that's what we have when we go to court today. You have a prosecutor and a defending attorney. And the prosecutor will bring forth evidence to try to prove that this person's guilty. The defense attorney will bring forth evidence to prove that this man is not guilty, but he's innocent. And so there's a gathering of the facts, and the pool of jury has to decide whether the facts are right or wrong. God doesn't do that. He already knows. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 8, as Jesus was talking about prayer, says, God knows what you need even before you pray. God knows. Matthew chapter 10 talks about how God recognizes a cup of cold water given in the name of a disciple. And so God knows. Now, take your Bible if you want to go with me back to the book of Romans chapter 14. That was one of our passages on the screen a while ago. But back in Romans 14, you might say then, okay, if God already knows, then why are we having a judgment? And Romans chapter 14 helps answer that. It says here in Romans 14, verse 10, Why do you judge your brother? Why again do you regard your brother with contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. As it is written, as I live, the Lord says, Every knee shall bow to me. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen in church buildings. Sometimes those knees are connected to somebody who's asleep. Sometimes those knees are connected to somebody who's bored. Sometimes those knees are connected to somebody whose mind is off in la-la land. But here, every knee shall bow. There will be no atheists. There will be no deniers. There will be no skeptics. There will be no one that says, well, you know, I'm just not sure which God is God. You can say that today. But at this day, every knee of every person shall bow. And it says in verse 11, Every tongue shall give praise to God. What a glorious thing that will be. Then in verse 12, so then each one of us shall give an account of himself to God. Why are we judged? So all creation can be gathered together. Why are we judged? So all creation can bow and praise God. Why are we judged? So that there was a sense in which God gets his glory, but also every person will give an account to God. Every person will do that. Now, when you think about that, there's a lot of logistics, in my mind, how this is going to be. I mean, you think about every human being who's ever walked on this planet. That's a lot of people. So is he going to do it by generations? So we're going to start with Adam's generation. The next thing, I can take a few naps here because it's going to take a long time to get to me. Is he going to do it by nations? Africans? Europe? Now we're going to do Americans? Is he going to do it by families? All the Shouse family comes up. Everyone who ever carried that name Shouse, you all come up here, we're all going to be judged. The Bible doesn't tell us that. And if God can make this entire planet in six days, and I don't think it took him six days. I think he could have done it one day, but he's teaching us a week. He can judge us quickly and fast. And that reminds us of these things. Now, take your Bible, if you will, and go with me to Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, Jesus gives us a series of three parables. The parables are all about his return, and they all have a connection to the judgment. We begin with, first of all, the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. Matthew 25 and the first 13 verses. And in that we find that uh, the image is of a wedding. And the bridegroom was away. And the virgins went to sleep. 
And as they were sleeping, the call came. The bridegroom is coming back. They, they lit their lamps. Some of them did not have enough oil. They went to buy the oil. And as they went, the wedding started. The door was shut. And they're left out. The second parable is the parable of the talents in verses 14 through 30. Here the master gives three different men various amounts of money. And he goes away. And when he comes back, he wants to see what they did with their money. One had five talents, he duplicated it to ten talents. One had two talents, made four talents. One who had one talent just buried it in the ground. He didn't use it, he didn't abuse it. Here it is. But the master called him a worthless, lazy slave and took that away from him. And then in the third story, it's the sheep and the goat, verses 31 through 46. There it talks about how they did what they're supposed to do. Now, in all of this, there's some common parallels. We see, first of all, in all of this, that there's a key person who's gone for a long time. It's the groom in the first one. It's the master who owes the talents in the second one. It's the king in the third one. They're gone for a period of time. While they're gone, the point is, what are you doing? Back to our song. Are you ready? Are you ready? And then in all three, the person who was gone comes back. And there's a sense of accounting taking place. The wedding's going to start. Or we're going to get the books out and see what you did with the talents. Or we're going to see what you did with your time. And then in all three, those who were condemned were surprised at their rejection. Now, in Matthew 25, let me just pull out some thoughts from each of these three parables I want you to see. In verse 13, as he ends his first parable about the wise and foolish virgins, he says, Be on the alert... For you do not know the day nor the hour. Now, had you known it was going to happen, you'd be ready. And that's the point he's making there. Back up in verse 10 of this section here, he says, And while they were going away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him. What's the hymn of that song? Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? Those who were ready went in. Then a little bit later in the second one, we look in verse 27 about the parable of the talents. And what we see here is there's a sense of expectation. So when he comes and gives an accounting of the one who had just a one talent, he says, then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. He had an expectation. This is what you should have done, but you didn't do it. Are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? And then with the sheep and the goats, we begin with verse 31. It says, but the, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared from the, for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? 
or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. What you notice there is not, can you name the books of the Bible in order? What you notice here is, can you find Jerusalem on a map? What you notice not here is, can you name all the good kings of Israel and Judah? But what we do find here is, what have you done with your faith? What have you done? And so when we look at this, we, we look at really what is important to God. And what we realize is a lot of things that are so important to us are not going to be to God. I don't think God's going to ask us how well we picked up our house. Those of you that have little children, sometimes you get all stressed out because the kids got things scattered about and everything. I don't think that's going to be one of the key questions at judgment. Did you pick up your house? I don't think God's going to ask you, did you balance your banking statement every month? I don't think God's going to say, did you rotate your tires at a good time? I don't think God's going to say, did you fertilize your yard? Those are the things that are in our minds. But I don't see that. Here are three things I think is important to God. First and foremost is faith. And again, let's put a couple passages on this. If you will, look with me in the book of John, chapter 8. In John, chapter 8, as Jesus was talking about faith, Notice what he says in verse 24. John chapter 8 and verse 24. I say therefore to you that you shall die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. You might be a good person. You might be a person that lends a lot. You might be a person that's kind. But if you don't believe in Jesus and that faith doesn't move you, you will die in your sins. In chapter 7 of Matthew he says it this way. Again, a scene that seems just to take place at the judgment. Matthew chapter 7 and begins verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And your name cast out demons, and your name perform many miracles. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You who practice lawlessness. So what's important to God? Faith. A faith that is active. A faith that moves. I believe that's something God's going to judge us for. Do you believe? And if you believe, did you show it in your life? Did it change your life? Did it make you any different because of that? I think the second thing the Bible shows to us is how we treat one another. How we treat one another? Well, we're in the Gospel of Matthew. Go with me to chapter 6, if you will. Matthew chapter 6, and in verse 14, verse 15, following that example of how to pray, Jesus said this, Matthew 6, 14, 15, For if you forgive men their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. And I believe that's something's going to come up in the judgment. I've got some people, did I forgive them as God wants me to? And again, James would say, if we have no mercy, there's going to be no mercy to us. The very next chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. 
throw the book, everything's black and white, hard, demanding, I expect you to tow up the line? Is that the way I want God to treat me? And then in Matthew chapter 12, look at verse 36. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 36. And I say to you that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for in the day of judgment. That guy who's driving like an idiot, and you just have to say that? Road rage, all those things that come out? How we treat one another is important to God. And then number three, I believe how serious we are about the kingdom. That's why Jesus would say in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Seek ye first the kingdom of God. The kingdom there is not the church. The kingdom is the righteousness and the reign of God. Are you putting God first in your life? If all other things are counted for, God is on top of my list. God is what I need to have most in my life. Now back to this fictitious story I began with. Let's go on with how it ends. It talks about Jesus. And Jesus got up and walked to the back of the wall of the files. Starting at one end of the room, he took a look at each and every single card. One by one, he began to sign his name over my name on each card. A name written in thick red ink that would cover my name. His good name should not be on those cards, I thought. But there it was, written in red, so rich, so dark, so thick, so alive. The name of Jesus covered mine. It was written with his blood. He gently took the card back. He smiled a sad smile and began to sign the cards. I don't think I'll ever understand how he did it so quickly. But the next instant, it seemed I heard him close the last file, walk back to my side, place his hand on my shoulder, and said, It is finished. So let's now wrap this up, and let's put some verses on this. How can you and I have any hope? Are you ready? And you might say, boy, I don't know. After this sermon, I'm scared to death, you know. Everything I thought, everything I said, I mean, it's just there. And so turn with me in the Bible, and let's put some verses on this. We begin, first of all, in the book of Ephesians in chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Where we remind ourselves in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. Not one of us will be perfect. Not one of us will have done everything exactly right. If that's your hope to get through the judgment, you will fail. Because not one of us can be. We are going to be saved because of the grace of God. We need to realize in our fellowship, sometimes we're afraid to talk about grace. We feel like we're going to be like the denominations, and we kind of go a little bit too far that direction. But salvation by grace is the biblical answer. It is what the Bible teaches. Now, over in the book of 1 John, we've got to look at three places here. 1 John chapter 1, begin with. 1 John chapter 1. And then we'll go to chapter 2, and then we'll go to chapter 4. 1 John chapter 1, <clears throat> and let's <clears throat> begin by looking at verse 7. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. Verse 6 says, but if, we walk, <clears throat> but if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now let's go to chapter 2, if you will. Chapter 2 of 1 John, and look at verse 28. 1 John 2, verse 28. And now, little children, abide in him. Abide in him is just like walking in the light, meaning the same thing. And now, little children, abide in him, so that if he should appear, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. You see that? Don't run in fear. Come boldly, Hebrews says, before the throne of grace. Then in chapter 4 of the book of 1 John, 1 John chapter 4, and we look at verse 17. 1 John 4, verse 17. By this love is perfected with us, that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. We have confidence, not because we did everything perfect, not because we never made a mistake, but by the grace of God, we follow Jesus. We do the best that we can. Our hope is in Jesus. And so this is why when you go to 2 Timothy chapter 4, and Paul was wrapping up his life and talking about the things in his life, and he would tell us those great words in verse 7, I fought the fight, the good fight, I finished the course, I've kept the faith. In verse 8, in the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. How can I know that's going to happen? Because of God's promises and God's assurances and the faith that I have in God. And then in the book of 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, and all these verses together kind of help us make this picture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9. Therefore we have as our ambition, whether home or absent, to be pleasing to him. That's what we're about, to please God in all these things and to do what God wants. And so as the Bible ends in the book of Revelation chapter 22, it ends with these words, come Lord Jesus, come. We are anticipating you. We are wanting you. This is not something that we are dreading and scared of. We know it's because of you that we have the hope of eternal life. And so when we go back to Thompson's song, are you ready? Are you ready? Are you ready for the judgment day? The child of God who's walking by faith can say, I am ready. Have I done everything right? No. Have I said everything I should have said? Nope. Have I been where I should have been every time? Nope. But by God's grace and my faith in him, I have the assurance that I can be in heaven. And that's what we need to see. We don't want to walk through life with a question mark and kind of say, well, I sure hope we get to go to heaven someday and cross everything and have four-leaf clovers. There's no confidence in that. Confidence comes in Jesus Christ. And so what we need to see this evening is two things. First of all, if you're not a child of God, are you ready? If your life was to be called tonight, Jesus' story of the rich farmer, he was going to build larger barns, take his ease for years to come, the text says. But Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 20, tonight your life is required of you. Are you ready? Have you obeyed Jesus Christ? 
Have you been baptized? Are you walking with him? Are you taking all this serious, or is this just a joke? Are you, are you serious about these things? Are you here just because your parents are here? Are you here just for, because your, your husband or your wife is here? Are you here just as a pretense? Or do you really take this serious? Are you ready? And then for those of us that are disciples, how evangelistic this ought to make us. Because as we think about these words, once again, and let me read them to you once again, there's a great day coming, a great day coming. There's a great day coming by and by when the saints and the sinners shall be parted right and left. Are you ready for that day to come? There's a bright day coming, a bright day coming. There's a bright day coming by and by, but its brightness shall only come to them that love the Lord. Are you ready for that day to come? And it ends. There's a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming. There's a sad day coming by and by. When the sinner shall hear his doom, depart, I know ye not. Are you ready for that day to come? And I'll tell you, there's no way you can be ready for that. Those are words that no one wants to hear. So this lesson is just to be a reminder to us. We all want to go to heaven. And heaven is just a beautiful, beautiful picture the Bible puts before us. But before that, there's this thing called the judgment. And so it tells us that we need to be careful what we're saying, what we're thinking. It tells us we need to be careful how we interact with the world and each other. It reminds us that all these things matter because someday we'll stand before God. I hope this touches our hearts. I hope this makes us realize, you know, I just need to maybe step it up a notch or two. Maybe there's some adjustments I need to make in my life. Maybe there's some times that I just have not been where I should be and I need to do that. By the grace of God, I have another day. Maybe today's the day God's saying, won't you get it right? Won't you make it right? If you've never been baptized, this is a great time to do this. If you're someone who's just not really where you need to be, we're here to help you in any way. All of us will go through that someday. All of us will stand before that throne. There'll be no one exempt. There'll be no one who gets a pass. There's no one who gets a free out-of-jail card. Every single human being that's ever been in this planet will stand before God. Sobering thought, but a hopeful thought when we put Jesus Christ into this picture. If you're subject, won't you come as we stand and sing?